Well, this will be a slightly unusual podcast because of the shelter-in-place order. This is taking the place of the teaching normally that would appear at Oakland Drive Christian Church on a Sunday morning. So this will be a little different, and that also means this is actually the third piece of teaching in a series that is focusing on the last things that Jesus had to talk about before his his crucifixion. So it kind of is gearing us up for Easter uh, Sunday, which is coming up very soon. So this section runs in the Gospel of John from chapter 13 through chapter 17. And it might help you to have a Bible out because we'll be doing a little bit of flipping around there in chapter 13 and 14. Though this morning I'll be focusing on the purpose of the Holy Spirit as Jesus presents him to us for the first time here in chapter 14. This is really important, I think, because I see a lot of wrong, dangerous, and frankly quite bizarre ways of understanding who the Holy Spirit is, and what Jesus is talking about. So I hope this morning that we can clear some of the misconceptions up. I will not, however, clear up any of the mystery, because that simply has to be left in place. So as we get started, it's imperative that we keep in mind the big shape of the text. Remember I said this runs from 13 through 17. And last week, Paul honed in on Philip who puts his whole leg in his mouth when he says to Jesus, show us the Father. We'll be happy if you show us the Father. And Jesus is like, dude, that is what I've been doing. (laughs) But they missed it. When John starts his gospel, he starts it off with telling us they missed it. He says, Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But of course, the problem is, how did Philip miss it? Well, because the Jews demanded signs. In several places, we see Jews demanding signs from Jesus. And every time they do that, Jesus says no. Paul brings this up in his argument for why the Jews were not believing at all, because they demanded signs, which is really interesting to me, because Jesus has done like gobs of miracles, right? They saw healings. They saw feedings. So where's the hang up? Why are they still not seeing God? Why are they not seeing the signs that are right in front of them? You have to ask the question eventually, don't you? You literally saw Jesus tell a storm to shut up, and it listened. What kind of signs do y'all want? And that, I think, is that pertinent question, because the kind of sign we are looking for is wrapped up in the kind of God we are looking for. They are looking for the conquering king. And you will notice that Jesus' miracles are particularly demilitarized. (laughs) He healed people. He fed people. He cast out demons. He taught people. He calmed bad weather. And when he does confront power, because he does that frequently, he does it from the position of nonviolence. He does it first from a position of grace. Literally, Jesus has done the worst job demonstrating kingly power. But that's the point, isn't it? If you go looking for the wrong kind of signs, you are going to come up with the wrong kind of God and vice versa. So Jesus says, I've been showing you the Father. 
which of course has to hit Philip is very strange, who has up to this point thought he hasn't seen the father. He's got to be scratching his head, wondering, how did I miss it? What am I missing? I'm missing something, guys. What am I missing? And my friends, take some grace there for a second, because if Philip walking and talking with Jesus can miss it, so can you, and so can I, and Jesus still has mercy on us. But Luckily, in this case, Jesus has been very clear because in chapter 13, he led the way by clearly humiliating himself, <laughs> stripping down to his boxers. And here, this is, this is a new connection for me, and I, I know that I brought this up a few weeks ago if you were in church, but I, I want to hit it again because it, it matters so much. We will misunderstand the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's work, if we do not understand that the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work is rooted back in Jesus' demonstration of self-giving love in chapter 13. So here's the question. Why did Jesus get naked? I think the reason that I I thought this question, I've been doing a lot of reading and and racial uh, justice and these issues. And so I've been thinking quite a bit about, about slavery as well. And because of that, it finally made sense to me. Why did Jesus get naked? Because the house slave was naked. And why would the house slave be naked? Well, the same reason that they stripped African slaves who had been brought over through the Middle Passage, they stripped them naked and put them up in the slave auctions. Why did they do that? Because clothing is an actual privilege. I know privilege is a trigger word for some people out there, but we are privileged in many ways. The fact that you get to choose what you want to wear because you have more than one set of clothing is a privilege that most of the world has never experienced, right? So the master is completely clothed, but the slave is naked, exposed, disgraced, brought lower. And this is why we would never do that. That's why we have these <laughs> those horrible nightmares. You ever have one of those where you show up to work in your underwear or to class in your underwear or something? Why? Because it's shameful. You're like, oh no! And you, the dream is, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Jesus actually creates that nightmare scenario willingly to demonstrate not only how far God has come to show us love, but also how far we must go to learn it ourselves. When he is done, he says, do you understand what I did for you? And they say, absolutely not. (laughs) Why? Because why don't they understand? Because gods don't do this. Kings don't do this. Shoot, I bet the president, I bet the president doesn't make his own coffee. And we wouldn't expect him to, would we? He's important. He has things to do, people to see, business to attend to. How much more Jesus? (laughs) And Jesus says, I am your Lord. I am your master. And if you listen really carefully, I am your God. And if I have done this for you, You must do this for one another. And that is the sign that they should have been looking for. Tell me a story like that. Tell me a person who thinks like that or acts like that. They were looking for pride, flags, armies, power, money, walls that would scrape the sky. They were dreaming of the day that they would replace Babylon's power with their own. 
So when God showed up washing feet, they missed it. But maybe we have two. Now, keeping this all in mind, let's head back into chapter 14. Because Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. What works do you think he's talking about? Because he sure doesn't seem to be talking about miracles, like turning my water into wine, which, of course, these days is a nice, easy grocery store joke there for, for the day. But seriously, he's talking about washing feet. He's talking about love. He is asking something so difficult. I, I can't even imagine degrading myself to any of you. I have a hard time being nice when I'm grumpy. We've spent so long, our whole lives, and really this is just a psychological fact, our whole lives inflating and protecting our own egos. And it is this kind of submission that is both impossibly hard and critically important. Jesus says, the works I do start here. Now, if you feel in your stomach that this sounds unpleasantly difficult, I'm so glad you're paying attention. <laughs> because let's, let's just be real for a second. Everyone thinks they're humble. And no one thinks they're proud. And every single time, I mean every single time, the person who thinks they're the most humble person in the room is always the most proud. And they never see it. Never ever see it because they have spent so much time inflating their pride that it protects their hearts from the painful truth of their own brokenness. They have figured the world out. They now are in a position of strength and security. And I know these people. I know them so well because I am them. One of our first commandments is to walk humbly before God. But God is not standing in front of you. Your neighbor is, your family is, your enemy is. God humbled himself before his enemies, literally washing his betrayer's feet, leading us to this terrible and wonderful and savagely beautiful truth. We don't walk humbly before God until we learn to walk humbly before one another. So this is why Jesus says you will do greater things. Imagine how mature spiritually Jesus must have been. <laughs> For Jesus, I, I bet that whole scene is not humiliating at all. Jesus doesn't have our inflated sense of self. He doesn't struggle with it the way we do. But for us, it would be and is so much more difficult. So Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And this verse doesn't stand as some kind of random promise. It's rooted in the vision of service and love. So Jesus moves on and says in verses 15 and 16, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, what commandment? Of course, everything we've already been talking about. That's the context of all of this. And that is going to be so incredibly difficult that we're going to need some help. I'm going to need help. I'm going to need 
to be reminded to think of others because I pretty obsessively think about my own needs and desires. I'm going to need a new imagination that leads me to consider ways of serving others when for my whole life I've mostly considered ways of serving myself. I'm going to need supernatural power to overcome my own desire to be in charge, to be right, to be strong, to be special. So God is sending the paraclete. And you got to forgive me because every preacher that ever preaches about the Holy Spirit has to bring this up, and I'm not any different. But depending on what translation you have in front of you, it might have said something like helper. It might have said, I'm going to send a counselor. It might have said, I'm going to send an advocate. All of these are, are fair translations of this word, which means literally someone who stands next to you. Somebody who is with you on the journey. And sometimes on the journey, we need to kick in the pants. Sometimes we need good advice. Sometimes we need somebody to hold us because we're broken and we just need comfort. Sometimes we need someone to just stand there and listen while we rage. Sometimes we need somebody to carry us. And in those moments, God himself fills in the gap that we lack so that we are not left orphans, and that this calling is not impossible. It's only impossible without the Spirit. Thank God he has come to us. In Jesus, God came to us, Emmanuel, God with us, but in the Spirit, God never leaves us. Because the task is simply beyond ourselves, literally beyond ourselves. Literally, God is trying to pull Jordan away from Jordan so that I stop considering myself all the time and begin to think outside of myself. And to do that, I need outside power. Here comes the Spirit. We are so broken, and God is so good that he desires to walk with us along the way. And isn't it fascinating? This fascinates me because this too, doesn't it, make the Holy Spirit a servant as well. As though all of the universe is bending towards self-giving love. This is a vision that you will not capture in anyone else but Jesus. And that is why he says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I am life. So we are being lifted up even as we are being told to lift up. And now it makes sense why Jesus says the world can't receive it. It doesn't mean people can't understand it. There's nothing unclear about what Jesus has done and said here. But it is so puzzling. A lot of times people read the Bible and they can't even see what's right in front of them. It's not that we can't understand it. It's that we choose not to. It's that we can't receive it. The world can't receive it because it would mean the death of the world. It would mean the inversion of power structures. It would mean presidents start making their own coffee. Right? It would mean that things would actually change. That inversion is so powerful that it would mean the death of everything and the world simply can't receive it. And this is why the church's tagline should have always been, love Jesus and hate power. And I'm afraid that that good news has been lost 
Literally, the context of Jesus' teaching on the Spirit is the Spirit's service to us so that we can serve others. So the Spirit is the comforting, empowering presence that sees us through this difficult task. So Jesus gives us hope, though. I mean, this, this, isn't, this isn't bad. This is wonderful. This is the way the universe is designed to be. And we are the ones who keep on screwing it up because we keep on resisting the grain of God's creation. Jesus says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and bring to remembrance all of the things that I have said to you. Now, we puzzle over this too, but I don't think this is that mysterious. I I don't think this is a miracle here. I mean, not in the sense of the signs that I think people are wanting it to be. But here it seems to me that the Spirit is going to interact supernaturally in my heart and mind in a moment so that the feeling or thought that inspires me to put someone else first will come to the surface and I can actually begin to live into this tremendous calling of love that we see demonstrated in Jesus. Perhaps a a scandalous idea I've been mulling over for a bit. When was the last time you or someone else you knew voted for someone who would harm you but help someone else. Like, you know the policy will benefit someone somewhere else, but it will financially or whatever, civil rights or whatever it is, affect you in a negative way. How would you cast your vote? Because I think we'd all do the same thing. It'd be psychotic to vote against your own interests. Voting is essentially and especially motivated by, by self-interest. But if I, I were to think about how would Jesus vote, He would definitely not vote for his own self-interest. That wouldn't be his frame of thinking. So what is being brought to mind here is not the Holy Spirit sort of giving you magic hands to lift up the dead, though maybe that will happen too, I don't know. But that is certainly not Jesus' point here. Certainly not the power and purpose of the Holy Spirit here. Jesus demonstrates love for us. It's shocking. God loves you that much that he puts himself under you. Never question God's love for you. It's eternal. It's so literally eternal that the purpose of Jesus coming was to teach you more clearly how to know and love God. So you could see more concretely how deep the Father's love for you is and what it looks like to love like God loves. This isn't bad news. This is good news. And so Jesus encourages them. He says, I know this is going to be a little bit hard for you to conceive of. It's going to be hard, but listen up. Straighten your back out. This isn't over. He says, peace I leave with you. That's a big task he leaves with us too. But at the end of the day, what is he leaving us with? He's leaving us with peace. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace of Christ is the peace that changes the way you see the world. And I am convinced Jesus' primary meaning here is not inner peace. Not that inner peace doesn't go along with it, but that certainly doesn't seem to fit the context. What kind of peace is Jesus leaving here, and how is it directly contrasted with the kind of peace that the world would offer you? Because I have heard 
Oprah talk a lot about inner peace, but I bet she doesn't make her coffee either. (laughs) The point is that Jesus' peace is freedom. Freedom to stop playing the world's stupid games. To stop spinning the same cycles of anger and abuse. To stop letting money and position suck your soul dry. To find beauty and purpose and meaning that gives life and fills up those around you. This is why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is pleading with us to see what is right in front of us. And that is that everything is different than you thought it was. Strength is not found in domination, but in humility. And Jesus demonstrates that for us. And he asks us to see it for what it is, to embrace it and to know that if we do seize it, that when the time comes when we are not strong enough to carry it anymore, it is at that moment the God of the last minute rescue steps in and carries us on. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be afraid. These are commands that require an act of will, an act of faith. We must decide to reject fear too, because fear will kill us faster than any disease. We must resist its danger But there is, on the other side of this, wonderful news that when that fear does feel overwhelming, the Holy Spirit shows up. And often in the form of another Christian to lift you up, which is again why my experience is that God is the God of the last minute rescue. Beloved, be encouraged, for the Spirit is with us, as I said Jesus came to demonstrate for us God's love, that we could see it in its fullest, purest, and most complete form, that it could bring about the salvation of the whole world. But it is the Spirit that has moved into our hearts, reformed us, and transformed us so that we could see the world and one another just as Jesus sees the world and the other. Peace and strong coffee.